Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people to discern from your word what it is that you have to teach us today. Lord, we pray that minds would be informed, but we pray that souls would be changed. I pray that these people would remember and acknowledge their obligation before you today, which is to leave in a different estate than that in which they came. We thank you for the truth and the clarity of your word. We pray that you would grant us understanding by the ministry of your spirit. We pray for saints to be sanctified and sinners to be saved. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I may start out here first today with a word to parents, I'll say to you that one of your objectives, if you are one, with the raising of your children ought to be to provide them with an honest perspective on the consequences of right action. Obviously, as Christian parents, we are promoting right action in our children, but to suggest to them or even to explicitly teach them, as some do, that doing the right thing is always going to lead to personal happiness or improved social status or improved relationships is to guarantee their disillusionment. It is to send them out into the world to behave in a godly manner, But that world that they're being sent out into is manifestly ungodly. And so they will suffer as a result of that righteousness. And uh, it'll be a bit like getting punched in the stomach when you're not prepared for it versus being punched in the stomach when you are prepared for it. In neither event do you enjoy it. But in one event, you are completely, um, you have the wind completely knocked out of you. But the temptation toward this sort of messaging still is very real. We very much as parents want to incentivize good behavior, and we want this because we love our children. We want them to become upright men and women. And reward is a powerful incentive for good behavior. And indeed there is a reward for righteousness, but that reward comes from God. It does not come from life, whatever that means. And this is what we need to teach them so that they seek their reward in the form of God's favor instead of understanding it in terms of man's favor or favorable outcomes in the here and now. Thus, they must be taught that Christ is Lord and not positive outcomes. And that latter approach was one of the many flaws in the 1990s era, early 2000s era Christian movie. And I say one of the many flaws because another one was just that they were bad movies. Very difficult to watch for those of us that were tortured 
by having been made to watch those, you probably would have preferred waterboarding. <laughs> but these movies, they, they always moved from some intrapersonal conflict rooted in believer versus non-believer, and really the righteous versus the unrighteous, and they moved towards that inevitable scene at the end of the movie, that gratuitous, cheesy conversion scene, where all that was wrong is now made right. Now, the message of these films was as clear as it was false. It was be faithful, and people will in the end come around. A person that you are ministering to will become a Christian. Real life, as sovereignly dictated by God, is of course not like that. In reality, the consequences of Christian faithfulness will sometimes yield a positive result, meaning conversion. More often, though, they won't going to spread a lot more seed than you will see germinate and produce healthy, vibrant Christians. But very often, and this is certainly true of our ministries considered over the course of time, you're going to get a mixture of both. So your life is not neat, it is not clean, it does not color inside of the lines. More often than not, it is a combination of joy and sorrow, success and suffering, Reaping and losing, being welcomed and wiping the dust off of your feet after you have been rejected by the very people that you meant to help. And such is the case in Acts 13, which we will begin to re-enter now. By way of reminder, Paul has just given a concise and compelling presentation of the gospel. And this concluded with a stern warning that occurred in verses 40 and 41, therefore take heed so that the things spoken of and the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So to what end? To what end has he preached this message and given this warning? An exclusively positive conversion scene and only happiness and good vibes all around? No. But let's begin now to find out what does happen, and we will exegete and apply here as we go. And today we will also conclude our study in the 13th chapter of Acts. So pick up again in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of of God. Now, in this church, and I, I'm sure many, there are sermons that do more to pique your interest as a collective, and there are sermons for which this is less true. And there are a lot of reasons for this, and I don't take offense either way. Sometimes it's a reflection of the delivery, though I think not often. Far more so, um, increased interest is due to the content. Much of what we do, and really all of it, is review. Um, and absolutely all of it has already been said before. So most sermons serve to remind you of the cardinal truths of our faith, which is essential because we so easily forget them. But every once in a while, one of those cardinal truths becomes real in a way that it hadn't before. And in these instances, something was offered to you that revealed an aspect of the nature or the actions of God that you had not previously understood, or at least you had not understood them as well. A clearer light is cast upon them. Or even better, the needs of your souls were satisfied in some way that they had not been previously but desperately needed to be. And in fact, you may have actually entered the gathering totally unaware of this need. 
and then you were made aware and it was met. And in these times where interest is especially heightened because the Spirit has driven His Word into your souls in a special way, comes out in the Q&A that immediately follows the sermon. It's especially active. There's a lot of dialogue, people asking questions, people giving observations, and that's wonderful. This also carries into the lobby when I'm standing out there. You'll give me your perceptions. It also carries into the fellowships after the service, if indeed we have one scheduled. Sometimes, and this has happened numerous times actually in the life of this church, it'll carry into the following prayer meeting. People will be talking about what the Lord has done. It's not because of me, it's because of the Spirit using His Word. But when the Lord has used you that way as a preacher and you have really struck a chord, you'll know it because those in your hearing are not simply able to move on. That chord, once struck, continues to resonate well after you have finished, and that is what is happening here. Every thought in these people's minds has been captivated by Christ. Every other thought has been crowded out. And so, verse 43, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 42, which we'll look at more closely in a bit, they are begging to be taught by Paul again. But in verse 43, they also demonstrate that they are not willing to chance having to wait until the next Sabbath in order to receive that grace of hearing him preach the gospel once more. Now, at this point, I want to clarify a statement that I made in a recent sermon, speaking about Paul's sermon. I said, this is the greatest sermon from the greatest preacher in the book of Acts. I still hold that to be true. But what I want to clarify here is why it is the greatest. And bound to the answer to this is the reason why these synagogue goers are left desperate for more. So what makes this address so great to the effect that Paul's hearers cannot get enough? Well, first, let's eliminate some of the possibilities. Is the sermon's general construction, or say its mechanics, exceptional to the point where it can account for this? No, no, it's very well constructed. But it's not exceptional in that way. It's not, for example, poetic. It doesn't utilize some grand literary device. Psalm 119, which we just finished reading, does that. It's constructed in that sort of a way. It's an acrostic psalm. That's 22 sections, each beginning with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Each of these sections has eight lines, and each of the eight lines begins with the same letter. And so, considering form in addition to content, that psalm has well earned its status as a magnum opus among other magnum opuses. But does Paul engage with his content in that way? No. That's not to diminish again his preaching, but this is a simple story told from beginning to end. It starts with the patriarchs through whom God began a people, moves to David, who was a king, but from his line came the king. When it goes to John the Baptist, the greatest of the old covenant prophets, it goes back to Christ, and it gives an explanation of the limitations of the law, which contradicts their understanding of the law, and then it gives a warning to turn away from the truths that they have been given. 
So in form, this really isn't anything especially fancy. And I have one more question for you in this vein. Is Paul especially verbose? Is he in his use of language in the company of Mr. Whitfield or Mr. Spurgeon especially? At least in this particular address, is he Bill Shakespeare with a Bible? No. It's a simple story told in a simple way, spoken in simple language. So simple, in fact, that if a five-year-old were in his hearing, which I assume was in fact the case, they would have understood at least the gist of this. Ah, this sermon was exquisite. But it was exquisite in its simplicity. And remarkably, it was for this that in verse 42, again, the people kept begging. The word again is begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, mastery of language has its place, and delivery and even charisma need not be set at odds with faithful preaching. That's not going to happen with Apollos. It shouldn't happen with us. So if you have those Spurgeon gems sitting on your shelves, don't throw them out just yet on account of what I'm saying. That's not my meaning. But what does need to be understood by all of us is that what is so compelling to these people is the simple message that per the text of Scripture, Christ is Messiah and Christ alone saves sinners. Now, the Lord has gifted some men greatly, but whether we speak as preachers with silver tongues or we speak more like men with tongues made of coal, Christ is what makes our message matter. And if we want people to flock to him and not say us, then that is how we will preach. And this is true with respect to pulpits and pastors behind them. It's true of people on the streets uh, acting as evangelists. It's true of you, Christian, in your private conversations. And as an aside here, and I'll acknowledge that this would probably be more than an aside, uh, this desperate longing for more gospel shouldn't merely characterize the new believer or those being wooed into believing by the Holy Spirit on the first occasion. We have become so accustomed to sort of accepting this that we don't really think about what's happening. Shouldn't it be that the more that you know about God, the deeper you are taken into His being, the more love you should have for Him, and the more that desire should be fostered? Shouldn't it be the opposite of what it is? Given more building blocks, you should be able to put together a better structure. Likewise, a mind more enriched should have the capacity to become even more so. Be assured, Christian, God never gets dull. How he saves sinners certainly never gets dull. So if it has gotten dull for you, you are the one who has become dull. And that's a big, big problem and something you need to take care of. You need to seek the Lord in prayer and ask him that he would make himself your first love again because he clearly has become something else. Now back to this narrative, having heard the gospel and therefore having received what is necessary for salvation, have these people actually been saved? Have they forsaken their faith and their own capacity to be law keepers and recognize that Christ alone has kept the law on their behalf? Well, for Paul and Barnabas, the answer is a solid maybe and a definite we don't know. Verse 43 again, Paul and Barnabas speaking to them, we're urging them to continue in the grace of God. So the message here is, if you are Christians, then be Christians. 
Well, whether or not you're Christians will be known soon, and it will be known soon by your testimony. This is a variation then on Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If, emphasis upon that word, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. But I say that this is a variation on that because the question of, are you Corinthians, even Christians, was prompted by their bad behavior, their pagan context that had bled into Christianity. Whereas the legitimacy of these people's faith is going to be proved or disproven by their continued belief or lack thereof. Thus they say, continue in the grace of God. Now how does one continue in God's grace? Do we maintain it? Is it built by God and then a thing maintained by us from that point forward? Do we work for saving grace? Do we work at saving grace? Do we cooperate with saving grace? This would seem to render grace a work, if so. Before we draw that conclusion, consider again the audience. Are these Corinthians to whom he is speaking? Are they Antiochians, as we have encountered recently in our study through the book of Acts? No, they're not. They're not pagans. They don't behave like pagans. They don't live like pagans. They don't have pagan sexual ethics. They don't have pagan ethics at all. And so there is little danger of them slipping back into pagan acts. So these are paragons of moral virtue by the standards of the world. They are not openly lawless. They are not those who flout God's precepts. These are those who trust in their adherence to the law for their eternal salvation, going back to verses 37 through 39. He, Christ, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, the Lord Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him... Christ, everyone who believes, is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That is what Paul and Barnabas are speaking against. It is the damnable heresy known as legalism. So Paul and Barnabas are not concerned here with behavior primarily. They are concerned here with belief, with faith. These people are rigorous adherents to their religion, and this need not change all that much. They can continue to observe the holy days, and they should. Not as a means of salvation, but as uh, an honorarium to what the Lord has done. The what of their religion will change, not saying that it won't, but much more so the who and the why need to change. And that's the key to the apostles' warning. The who and the why must change, and they must stay changed forever. What has ostensibly here begun in grace, and I say ostensibly because they still don't know, they haven't observed the outcome, but what appears to have begun in grace cannot ever be completed with works, and they should never, must never try. Should they ever depart from preaching Christ as Savior and trusting Christ as Savior to once more preaching and trusting the law as Savior, they will have proven to have never been in a state of grace in the first place. And so again, he says, continue in the grace of God. Now let me pause here and ask you some really basic questions about the Christian faith. This basic question, what is eternal life? Well, I know of no better definition than the one that is given in John 17, 3, From our Lord himself, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, and we'll we'll fill that out a little bit uh, coming soon. But here's another really simple question in the meantime. 
How long does eternal life last? That is not a trick question. How long does eternal life last? Eternally. So if eternal life is eternal, and it is defined there by Jesus as knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom he has sent, then how long does one who is genuinely converted abide in the knowledge and the belief that only Christ saves? Instead of, say, their law-keeping, their good works, well, they abide in that saving knowledge forever since, again, according to Jesus, savingly knowing these things is the true nature of eternal life. This is Paul's lesson as well as the truths that undergird it. And what we are seeing here is one battle in what will be one of the definitive and enduring wars in this man's life and in his ministry. When he rebukes, as he does, the Gentile Christians, he will excoriate the synergism between their former paganism and their current Christianity. But when he rebukes the Jewish converts, he is going to rebuke the synergism between their legalism and their Christianity. This message is the primary thesis of Galatians, and we'll look here briefly at Galatians 5. We'll start in verse 1. It was for freedom, this of course is Paul speaking, that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery again being legalism, being bound by the law. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, a work of the law being used as a means of justification, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. If the idea is, I don't want to be crude here. If the idea is trimming a little bit off the top is going to justify you before God, then just carry it all the way through, says Paul, and take the whole thing. And by the way, that kind of language is not common for him. I have seen that text in particular used to justify even preachers dropping F-bombs from the pulpit. It is not that way. He does not speak this way commonly. This is a man that is all things to all men for the gospel of Christ. He will seek peace wherever he may find it. Why does he speak this way with this? Because if people don't get this, they're damned. There has to be a different kind of an approach. Paul's not anathematizing people to hell for no reason. He does anathematize them to hell for this abominable message. But note here, though, that it does continue to refer to these who are confused and are being made confused as brethren because he still hopes that they are. But for the fellows for whom he encourages self-inflicted genital mutilation, the same may not be said. If they seek to perfect the work of Christ by their own works, they will only succeed in polluting the work of Christ to the point where it cannot save them. If you recall last week, I used the illustration of all the oceans 
in the world being comprised of grace and even a thimble full of your own effort being poured into them. And that makes grace not grace. Because grace is all of God. It is all of God, God alone, Christ alone, period, and completely. Otherwise, it is not definable as grace any longer. And if it is not grace, it cannot save. And if it cannot save, then you are damned. And not inconsequentially, I have long believed that some way, somehow, the author of Hebrews was Paul. Uh, whether it was him writing directly or Luke transcribing one of his sermons. But now, considering this passage in Acts, I am even more strongly persuaded in that direction. And here is part of the reason why. Hebrews three twelve through 14, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now pause here for a moment and I'll continue. Think, it's not open lawlessness against which he is speaking. It is unbelief. It is a lack of faith. Continuing on in verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What is the deceitfulness of sin as he has it here? It is that a man might justify himself by law-keeping. He is not here again speaking to pagans who are in danger of falling back into pagan practices. But those who have held themselves by the law, at least in their own minds and in their own hearts, believing once more that they can do it again. And what is our assurance as it occurs in the text? The answer is Christ and His righteousness. And that's the point. And the author of Hebrews never properly understood teaches that one saved by grace can be unsaved, that eternal life can instead be rendered temporary life. Though he does use hyperbole and hypotheticals to drive home his point, but his position on the permanence of true salvation is made very clear in chapter 10. Verses 35 through 39, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised not as contingent, but as evidence of. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back into legalism, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to preserving of the soul. We're not of those who fall back. We are of those who endure. That's not a hypothetical, it's an explicit statement, and it sounds a little bit like they went out from us so that it would be revealed that they were never of us, coming from the pen of the Apostle John. So continue in the grace of God, because by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There is a cause and effect in the Christian life, but you cannot get this mixed up. Cause is Christ, the effect is righteousness. Cause is not righteousness, and the effect is Christ sprinkled in in some way. That was the seminal message to them then. It is the seminal message for all of us now. 
And I pray only that the Lord gives you ears to hear it if you've never heard it before. Because salvation only comes by these means. But stepping back into the progression of events in Acts 13, will everything stay as it has been? Every hearer eager and the work of God unto the salvation of souls seemingly evident everywhere. Well, let's find out, starting again in verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. I want you to hold on to that term. We will revisit it. And began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So there is your answer. Things have indeed not stayed on the same path. They have taken a turn. And Paul's words in Romans 10 are alive in Acts 13, starting in verse 1 of that chapter. And skimming, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God, to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, speaking of folks, just like these in Acts 13, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard. Have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. Case in point for that jealousy, Acts 13. Now, I must point out to you that in the span of three short verses, you have one of the strongest affirmations of human responsibility to savingly believe and also one of the strongest affirmations of God's sovereign granting of salvation without which no man can believe. Now, on this note, do you know what a contradiction is? Contradiction, and I'm quoting here from the dictionary, is a combination of statements, ideas, or features of a situation that are opposed to one another. That's a contradiction. But do you know what a paradox is? And this, again, is me quoting from the dictionary. Paradox is a, and here's the key word, seemingly self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Now, you need to understand this about God. Because you speak and you converse to others about the nature of God, and often people make this mistake. There are no contradictions with God, period. He is absolutely perfect in his consistency. He is absolutely cogent in every thought that he has, in every idea. He is literally the definition of rationality, or you might say logic, as our Lord Jesus is the logos of God. But God is a being of infinite intellect, and we are not. And so he says, Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So it is never to be understood that God's thoughts are irreconcilable. 
The calculus of God's wisdom is perfect. The math all adds up. To those of you who are accountants in the room or at least deal with numbers and financial matters and things of that nature, everything is exactly where it should be when you're talking about the wisdom of God. The issue here, though, is that the only mind up to these computations also belongs to God. So although all things concerning God are able to be reconciled, they are not all able to be reconciled by we God's image bearers and even we the redeemed of Christ. And this is one of these issues. And I've explained this in the past by using an illustration of intersecting roads. Imagine if you were on a trek up a mountain and you'd gotten very high and you're looking down on the clouds at this point and you see intersecting paths and they form an X and you can see the one path coming from the one direction, you can see the other path coming from the other direction and you can see where those two paths exit on the other side but it dips down in the center and the clouds obscure your vision right at the point of their intersection. That is something of the nature of God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man. I know that they are both there but I do not understand exactly how they relate. And this, by the way, is not some inconsistent position with Calvinist doctrine. This is our position. It is the Arminians that feel compelled to reconcile every aspect of this. God is completely and entirely sovereign. You are completely and entirely responsible for your unbelief. And being as um, ardent a supporter and, and preaching on the doctrines of grace as frequently as I do, even though I'm in danger of losing my Calvinist card, I won't focus here on that aspect of this. I will focus on the latter point because I think that that needs to be made far more so, at least in our context. Don't you ever blame the holy God of the universe for your own wicked unbelief. It is you. It is only you. You are the one to blame. And you may say, yes, but I am in a prison. Yes, but you love that prison. And so you can't be considered a victim of it. You would run back into that cage, and you do. You're not God's victim, friend. You are a victim of your own predations, the wickedness of your own soul. God is the Savior. He is not the condemner. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn it, that through Him it might be saved. Your condemnation comes from within. God is Savior, and He is judge, and both of those things come from without. But you did this to yourself, and you are still doing it to yourself. The problem is you. The solution is the Lord. I never get those things mixed up. He is not the author of iniquity. The point here is that if you're not appointed to eternal life, you will not attain it, and you alone are at fault for your unbelief. And all of this said, let us tend to the conclusion of this narrative. Pick up again in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and investigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with 
the Holy Spirit. And so it has indeed been a mixed bag. They have been received by some, they've been cast out by others, but what remains intact, and I would be remiss if I didn't point this out to you, it's their joy. If you cannot see the good that the Lord is doing in you and through you, and in this church, for example, and through it, then you have lost perspective. There is much heartache here because we preach the gospel in a fallen world. We have seen people fall away from a faith that was never actually theirs, and we will see more of this should the Lord tarry. There is always pain. There is always suffering. But what the Lord has done for us is orders of magnitude greater than that. If he saved one sinner and all the rest of them hated us on account of the message that we had given, the greater weight would rightly be put on the fact that he has saved that one. That is a proper perspective. That is their perspective. But as we conclude this narrative, everything is not as we would have it if we had written this script or if the aforementioned uh, 1990s, early 2000s era, low-budget, faith-based film studios had written the script. It wouldn't even have made it past the cutting floor. But it is real. I guess the only question that I would have left for you is which side of this are you on? Are you filled with joy, or do you, as you sit here, still reject? Are you jealous of, others of other people's faith because it is not your own? Have you put your unbelief upon God as though it were his fault? God has done everything to save sinners. And so if that's you, friend, if you're outside of the grace of God today, just accept that free gift. forsake the law as an instrument of your salvation so that you may come to love the law as a reflection of your God's character and a light into your path. Christ died for sinners. Having perfected the law, kept every jot and every tittle in action and in conscience, and on the third day he was raised that you might be raised to new life forever. Because eternal life is indeed eternal. Forsake all else and believe only this. And God will honor his promise. He will save you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we have the freedom of being able to trust your son. I, I cannot even fathom believing that I had the capacity to keep your law perfectly because I can't do it. And so what a wretched state I would be in. But I'm not in a wretched state because your son kept it for me. I pray that if there are any here who did not know you as they came in, that they would turn to you now. Holy Spirit, do the work that we cannot do. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. 